The College Game Day podcast is presented by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. We got a real simple plan. One me and one mission. Georgia has won the national championship. You're a fan, you might think this is sports heaven. This might be college football heaven. This is ESPN's College Game Day podcast. Now alongside Pete Thamel, is Reese Davis. The college football playoff semifinal that is not the other semifinal, no matter how people might market it. We also have the latest in bowl games and picks, picks, picks coming your way. This is the College Game Day podcast for Wednesday, December 28th. Reese Davis and Pete Thamel. Bill Connolly will join us in just a little bit. Uh, Pete, I don't know if you noticed, but after the podcast on Monday, we got a little pushback for being very Georgia-Ohio State-centric. And you know, this is a podcast, so you get to go another direction if you want to the next time, not just because, you know, Joe Hornfrog decided that we didn't discuss TCU enough, but his point was well taken, and we brought it up during the podcast that we'd spend more time on the other. Um, I read a really fascinating account leading up, I think it was in The Athletic, of the Michigan TCU game and the whole concept of Jim Harbaugh believing that J.J. McCarthy is a young Jim Harbaugh. And the author posited that really, really in this game, the captain comeback, tough guy, guy who epitomizes what Harbaugh was about as a player, plays for TCU. It's Max Duggan. Would would you – I mean, look – Jim, Jim was a much better, first of all, Jim was a much better player sometimes than people remember. I mean, he was terrific NFL quarterback, and obviously a great college quarterback. McCarthy might be that too. But there is something about Duggan that sort of reminds you of the of the Harbaugh motif, don't you think? Absolutely. Um, I mean, for me, and again, Max Duggan has one, perhaps two chances to, to make an indelible pressure forever on us. But for me, in that loss in the Big 12 title game, and I thought uh, Herb Street, Fowler, and Holly Rowe captured it all perfectly in real time during the game broadcast. Max Duggan, the the wheezing, gasping, bleeding prize fighter, to me, summed him up perfectly because they had done an unbelievable job in that game of keeping Max Duggan from being Max Duggan. They had been disciplined in their pass rush. They hadn't let him creep out on the edges. They hadn't let him go. And then in that final drive, he just absolutely single-handedly gashed them over and over and over to the detriment of his health at a certain point where he's like leaning over on, on the sideline. And yeah, he does have some of that moxie. Jim Harbaugh was clearly a better quarterback, better player. Max Duggan declared his intentions to go to the NFL draft. Do I think he gets drafted? Yes. Do I think he gets drafted before the sixth round? No. Do I think he ever starts an NFL game? Probably not. Like if you really had to like, you know, just be uh, be sort of un, unemotional about it. Do you agree with that? No, I don't. Okay. Um, no, no, maybe the draft position, but I absolutely believe that he'll start an NFL game. Mr. Irrelevant is starting NFL games right now. I mean, uh, I know he didn't start, but we talked the other day about the guy from South Dakota came in and played an NFL game. We if still Max, don't know his name. <laughs> uh, Steve, well, Chris Stevler. I, I committed it to memory finally. Um, I. I agree with you. He, I mean, Jim Harbaugh was first round draft pick. Yeah, he was a good player. I mean, people forget that he he was a first round draft pick. Yeah, Max Duggan is not going to be a first round draft pick. 
but I, I think he's got a chance, man. I mean, with the way with the way the league's going, you got to find the uh, the right spot uh, and the right coach who believes in you long enough. And that's one of the fascinating things about this season for Max is that. I think Sonny Dykes always believed in him to a degree, but Chandler Morris was going to be his quarterback after, you know, Chandler had a big game against Baylor last year, uh, won the job in the spring, then got hurt immediately. And what Max has done since then, the big plays, uh, you know, the completions under pressure. I mean, you look at some of the numbers. I mean, on passes 20 yards downfield, he leads the nation in completion percentage. He's first in touchdown passes. He uh, went pressured. His yards per attempt, number one. He's number one in the country in 50-yard completions. He has 13 of those. That's one of the real fascinating stats coming in because TCU has lived on those big plays to your guy, Quentin Johnston. He's got like five 50-yard receptions. I just mentioned he's a linear. He's a linear player. <laughs> yes, he is. And uh, I mentioned that Max has 13 of them. Do you know how many Michigan has allowed this season? 50-yard, taking half the field on a pass play. I would say none. You're close. One. One. Who got one? It? Do you know? All season long. So th- there are two. There are two factors to me that will determine this game pretty early. The first one is a little bit more important than the big pass plays. It's can TCU stop them from just running the ball at them? If you know, if Michigan lines up on the first series and just first time they have the ball and they walk the ball down the field, running the ball, it's going to be a long game for TCU. But if they don't. If they don't, that Joe Gillespie defense uh, finds a way to get started. Now, they they finished well. They played great in the second half. If they find a way to get started and then maybe make Michigan match them a little bit with some of those big shot plays down the field, and if Max can hit a couple of those, um, then I think TCU's got a great chance to win. I think you're going to know – I mean, I favor Michigan, but in terms of making a pick. But I think TCU's got a chance, but I think we're going to know fast how, how it's going to go. Well, let's think about this, Reese. Uh, I don't know how clear your memory is of the Alabama-Cincinnati game from last year, mm-hmm. uh, the, the playoff game. Were you guys there? Or were you, you no, the no, we were, we were, we were at the other game. game. No, that makes sense. So yeah. that game kicks off. Bill O'Brien, and this is, I'm going to go off memory here, so it's not going to be 100% right. I want to say that opening drive, they ran 11 of 12 times. Yeah, I think that's right. I um, mean, if it yeah. wasn't 11 of 12, it was 12 of 12 or 10 of – it was – they looked at Cincinnati's three three five, and they looked at the physical mismatch they had. And Cincinnati didn't have a terrible defensive line. I want to be clear about that. Mm-hmm. But they said, your defense is designed to stop tempo spread AAC teams. We are an mm-hmm. SEC team with a superior front. We believe we have a schematic advantage and good backs. And they just went pound, pound, pound. and. Cincinnati sort of struggled to adjust a little bit. And by the end, they were up. The tone had been set. So, again, is TCU's defense different than Cincinnati's last year? Yes. But is it also a 3-3-5 that is built to stop Big 12 offenses? It's not built to stop Big 10. And so it will be interesting to see the how TCU – to me, the key to this game is the physical mismatch on defense. I thought uh, one NFL scout – and I love talking to scouts about these because they just have no emotional attachment to it. Mm-hmm. It's just all body types and 40 times and projections, <laughs> and it's just sort of beautifully unemotional. One uh, one scout who knows TCU real well has gone through there for years, just kind of shrugged his shoulders, said to me, he's like, yeah. Dylan Horton, who's their really good defensive end, is really their only NFL body type on defense. 
Now, again, mm-hmm. will they have other NFL players on defense? Yes. Are there talented players on defense? That is not that. That is like the body type, the height, weight, speed, the archetype of what the NFL looks for, which is the prism through which they begin their evaluation process. So that said, like this guy thinks they have a good defense. Um, he he did not think that they had a uh, – they, they, they did not have a defense maybe designed to stop Michigan, however. Like, it's uh, – he was very complimentary of the way that Jamori Hodge, the middle linebacker, had played, especially towards the end of the season. Um, I had a, a coach who played them call Hodge a heat-seeking missile. And I think there's there's two tensions here that, that, that are going to play out, and I'll kick it back to you. One is I had a Big Ten coach tell me, I think Michigan's superpower – is that they do what they do and they're in complete alignment of how and why they are doing it. I thought mm-hmm. that was like a really good way to sum up the ethos of, uh, of, of Michigan in that, uh, in that sense. So what they're going to do is not a mystery. They are going to run inside zone and they're going to keep trying to run inside zone and, and wear you out from it. Um, the, the question is this. So you talk to the, 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 the offensive coaches who played TCU this year and they say, well, not so fast, my friend. Uh, TCU may look like it's easy to run on, but they're actually, because Michigan is not used to playing a defense like this, there's going to be some places where they're tricked, where they think, oh, we have a gap here, we have a crease here, we have an angle here, and you get a heat-seeking missile like Hodge come in, and it's from a different alignment than you're used to, and he can come and vacuum up that runner. So I don't think the physical mismatch will be as pronounced as Alabama Cincinnati last year. But I do think that Michigan is going to use their superpowers. Michigan isn't mm-hmm. going to come come out five wide empty and do they are going to do exactly what they have done. Um and that's essentially be an NFL style program in college. And I do favor Michigan. I kind of wanted to find a path for TCU and I call I, I just don't see it, Reese. I just don't see it. And I I just don't think if TCU is going to win, they've got to win 38-28, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And oh, I, no question. And, yeah. and I just don't – I just have a hard time seeing that Michigan defense being as good as it is on third down and being able to scheme up Quinton Johnston. They have other good receivers, but I really think, like, if they take away that straight line – that was a great stat you gave. If they take away that straight line vertical game, there is – you know, the, the field could get pretty small for that TCU offense. Well, you know, I think there are a couple of things. One, on the point of the TCU defense with that alignment – They've everybody on that defense tackles well. Now, you know, they they're they're really good in space. I think they proved that against Texas. Texas is uh Texas like wants to run the ball. Kansas State wants to run the ball. Certainly it's different schematically from Michigan, who the, the little hidden thing is that uh how many different ways will Michigan show you and block and scheme up running inside and outside zone and then throwing some gaps? I mean, they, they, they do a lot of different stuff that if you're just kind of watching the ball, mm-hmm. it doesn't really look different, but it yes. is. So that's yes. going to be a challenge for TCU's run fits, but they've been really good at that for the most part uh, this season, especially in the second half of games and especially, um, you know, especially in the latter part of the season. And, you know, that's that's why one of the things I said I thought we would know early is a little bit counterintuitive because I'm sure TCU fans listening to this, have you noticed how much better our defense has played in the second half? And that is absolutely Amen. true. I mean, they they have made adjustments or settled into the game or a combination of both, and they've been sensational. Almost, uh, 
ridiculous percentage of the yardage that TCU has allowed over, say, I think it's the last seven or eight games has come with the exception of the K-State game, probably. But for the most part, it's been allowed after the game was decided. You know, like uh, the, the, the great Mark Cohen, their sports information director in their notes, uh, has the raw stats of second half uh, yardage allowed. And then he has the footnotes down of, you know, um, a hundred, I, I don't know, making these numbers up, but 120 of the, you know, whatever, 232 second half yards Iowa State got came after they were behind a million to two, you know, or, or whatever the score was in that game. So they, they, when the game's been on the line second half, they haven't allowed a lot. You know, I think, I think that's one thing. And from the Michigan defense perspective, um, you know, they've, they've got really, really good defensive backs. A freshman defensive back, uh, Will Johnson picked off a couple passes against Purdue, one of them mm-hmm. covering Charlie Jones, who has almost as good, I, I was going to say as good a season as anybody at receiver in college football, but there are guys named Marvin Harris and Jalen Hyatt. So he had almost as good a season. Yeah. And he actually, he was as is. productive as them. He was as productive yeah. as anybody. No question. He was, he was more productive than Harrison. Yeah. Probably because he doesn't have a Mecca and Buka right in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So they've got Will Johnson, DJ Turner is a veteran guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they've got a, a couple other guys who are good cover guys. So there are good matchups there. And Michigan also has been a great second half team. You know, they've oh, yeah. pulled away and stomped teams in the second half. Yeah. But I still feel like that we that the tone setting early is going to dictate the direction in which this game goes long time long term, even though both have been great in the second half. Yeah. Well think about this. If you're if you're Michigan scheming them up, uh TCU has a very good freshman nose tackle, uh Dominic Williams. All right. He's started started from jump street, been a linchpin for them this year. He's still a freshman nose tackle, and that could be going up against uh, a senior center, Big Olu from Virginia, who's obviously uh, – I think he won that one trophy. He did, the, yes. Yeah, for, yeah. for the best. And, and, the, and the Remington as the best center. Yes, so. and uh, he's the centerpiece of the Joe Moore Award for the second year in a row that Michigan's offensive line won. So, again, I am not going to sit here and pretend I can, like, break down trench play and hand placement and stuff like Pollock and some of those people, but I just think – if you're if you're Sharon Moore scheming up that run game for Michigan and they have a freshman nose tackle um, who is just, you know, not as big, not as developed as uh, as as some others, that is going to be an area where you are going to try to move. Now, look, that guy isn't going to be asked to make eight tackles in this game. He's going to ask to hold the point of attack. And if he can't hold the point of attack, it could be a long day. If you're watching the first drive of the game, I would watch big number 52 for TCU. If he hangs in and doesn't let the, you know, the push overwhelm him, I think TCU has a, has, has a pretty good chance to win the game. If he's getting blown off the ball and they're running inside zone, you know, through those, through those inside gaps, I think it could be a long day for the Horned Frogs. If, um, if TCU can put them in a few third and long situations, maybe make them, I'm not suggesting Michigan never throws the ball first down, but really make them have to be a little more varied in their offensive attack. I mean, look, you could argue maybe that with all due respect to those linebackers that you mentioned and Dominic Williams up front, you can make the argument that uh, Travis Hodges, Tomlinson, mm-hmm. Josh Newton on the corners, that, mm-hmm. that their cover guys might be the strong part of their defense. And now you're trying to attack uh, two guys who probably can hold their own against the Michigan wide receivers. 
Yeah. And I really think that it, it's funny now because I've broken down Michigan with, uh, with a dozen coaches uh, and scouts and kind of different guys. So you get different opinions. Um, tried to get guys who played them a little later in the year just to, you know, to have like a, a fresh sense of what they were doing schematically. And the, even one of them kind of joked to me, he was like, this isn't any like groundbreaking analysis I'm about to give you, but your best chances make JJ McCarthy hang in the pocket and play quarterback. Mm-hmm. Don't let now that's not saying he's a bad quarterback and that's not saying he's not going to be a great quarterback, but him is a pure pocket passer. He's not where he needs to be and will likely get in his career. So that is as opposed to like getting run at between the tackles and as opposed to him scampering around a little bit and making plays that's there. And you have to get them off the chains. I went back and looked at some of the Ohio state stuff last night it was play action, right? Like it wasn't, mm-hmm. it, you know, the, the, the long touchdown passes weren't anything particularly complicated, but I, I felt like in, in some, in, especially in one of the cases, the Johnson ball right down the middle, the safety was so eager to go play the run where he got bit. And I had a coach tell me that that was Ronnie Hickman, that, that there's a vulnerability. Um, there's a vulnerability there. And that that's a compliment to Michigan. Just stay in the course. Like, you know, play actions coming. Mm -hmm. Um, but their run game is so, uh, is, is so strong. And, and look, one of the quotes I used in my Ohio state Michigan breakdown was, uh, you know, we're not, you know, as, as an opposing defensive coach, we're not scared of Ronnie bell. Well, Ronnie bell played pretty well in that game. (laughs) Like Ronnie bell's giving it, but now is Ronnie bell a first round pick? No. Is he this, is he Quentin Johnston on the hoof? No, but Ronnie bell did just fine. And, And Cornelius Johnson, um, obviously, turned around that poor Ohio state defensive back. I'd forgotten how badly he looked on that, uh, on that play action on the 75 yard touchdown, not the one on the sideline, yeah, which right. was just a missed yeah. tackle. I mean, that's yeah. what that, what that yeah. was a zero blitz. And, and look, McCarthy did a great job getting the ball out, not getting sacked on third and medium. And then, you know, athlete makes a play and he goes and, uh, and he goes and does it. Um, one last thought on Michigan's offense. I thought was a good line. One of the opposing coaches said, when we analyze the opposing offensive line, we look every week for the dead fish who stinks. Who's the guy who stinks? Who gives it who's away? Who gives it gives away what they're doing? Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. just like who's the weakness? Like, yeah. where can yeah. we where can we go? And I had one one opposing coach say to me, they didn't really have a dead fish. <laughs> like they're they're good. And another said, if we had to pick one of the five to go at, it'd be Trevor Keegan, the left card. Um, mm-hmm. which the draft folks would tell you that it, that sort of games out in that uh in that sense. But um, the, the thought was that what they do schematically, and again, some of this gets over my head here, but what they do schematically, they don't ask Keegan to do a lot. And so it's hard and they, and they work so well together. It's hard to isolate and expose him because everything's so synchronized. So I thought that was uh, interesting. And boy, do people love Luke Schoonmaker. He could end up a first round pick. Like it, but people love live one coach compared to Heath Miller. Um, going back a bunch of years. Like, yeah, it's you know, like, like he, he will play, I would think a very big part in this game plan. And not, you know, what Schoonmaker is big. They also have the, the young tight end Colston Loveland, who Ooh. has made some plays lately after Eric all, you know, opted for surgery and ultimately transferred after his injury. Um, he's given them a little more depth at tight end as well. I, I laughed a little bit when you were talking about the dead fish, because Pollock says that every offensive line, Every offensive line has a squealer, meaning that if you study it long enough that you have someone 
who's going to tell you what the play is. Interesting. And, you know, so if that will be part of the, I'm sure that will be part it's of a great the term, the squealer, the squealer, the tattletale. Someone I can see Pollock get excited. Look at the left guard. He's the squealer. <laughs> well, Pollock, when Pollock played, he didn't even need the squealer. He just, true. He just ended up beating them. And yeah. it's just the, it's, told me Pollock had 360 dunk. I, I don't, I, probably. I mean, yeah. I, I know, I know we can lineman. dunk now. He's had, you know, he's had a little, oh, little knee issue here and sure. there lately. Yeah. But, but, but I mean, yes. like, like when, healthy. when, when yeah. he went in his combine, he was 40 plus vertical. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Have, have you ever, have, have you, I know you've seen him play. Have you ever, have you ever been out and done anything athletic with David? No. It, it's, it's remarkable. When we were doing Thursday night games, we would play um, we'd play touch football. A lot of times we'd play on Thanksgiving. A lot of times we would play just when we went. I, I reminded him the other day that uh, Brent Key was a remarkable third down possession receiver who joined us for what ended up being an epic two and a half hour game against the UCF managers one week. Um, and he joined our side because we had people dropping off. This this is this is true, man. I mean. Pollock was Pollock has such great hands and great speed, change direction, everything. We were we were kind of in a tight spot, tight spot, and he told me he told me he said just throw it at the crossbar. We were on the practice field at UCF. It's like okay, so I just went back, gave him a little time to get there, and then just just threw it at the crossbar, and all of a sudden he rises up from the ashes or wherever. He, he is a remarkable athlete. When he first started playing in these really competitive basketball leagues that have some former uh, SEC players, some former NBA players around Atlanta, uh, this was years and years ago. He didn't, he didn't shoot it that well. Obviously, he's a great athlete, but he didn't shoot it great. So he started shooting like, like, uh, like a like a real gun. player would no like like a thousand like a thousand jumpers a day, and now he comes back and tells tales of scoring forty five and you know I remember asking Antonio Davis about him once and Antonio just shakes his head you know said said yeah he just he thinks he thinks he can play up here <laughs> but that's part he he was a was and is even at at this age a remarkable remarkable athlete he that same uh, UCF trip I had so many stories out of that trip he got so angry with George O'Leary. We were, um, we were in the, uh, such a nice guy. I have a hard time believing. Well, no, no, but I mean, let me tell you why we're in the meeting. We're talking about the, uh, talking about the game. I don't, I don't recall who they were playing. It doesn't really matter. And George looks at him and he goes, you know, David, you'd listen to me. You'd still be playing tight end in the league. And Pollock came out furious. And I was like, David, he was paying you a compliment. He wasn't saying you weren't a great defensive lineman. <laughs> he was saying that you were such a great athlete that you also could have done what he wanted you to do, you know, at, at Georgia Tech. So anyway, so yes, uh, there, there's the Pollock praise. Hopefully he won't listen to this because he, you know, the head's big enough. He doesn't need our help from that. <clears throat> ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now, making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Allstate. 
ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Capital One. We went down a David Pollock rabbit hole, Bill Connolly. We went down a David Pollock rabbit hole. We started talking about the intricacies of line play, which I'm completely unqualified to talk about, and uh, restarted talking about some of David's uh, David's analysis of that. So, Bill, he says there's always a squealer on the offensive line. Who there's always somebody on the O line who will tell you what the play is. Yeah, but either okay. by a by alignment by. A mannerism by something, by weight okay. distribution. He said there's always a squealer on every offensive line. David Pollock, the number six uh, defender on my best uh, defenders of the 2000s list. Wow. Number uh, six. Um, huh? I, I put that out, I think, last year. And people kind of, it was far, it was long enough ago that people kind of forgot. Um, how good he was because I mean, I put him next to Aaron Donald and Khalil Mack and, and Honey Badger and all these guys, but his stats were crazy. Um, and then you go back and watch highlights and, and you realize that, uh, yeah, he was, he wasn't bad. He, he was he a bad, bad man. Who was number one? Uh, it had to be in Dominican Sioux. Like that one, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Two, like two through 10 yeah. could have gone in just about any order, but I, yeah, but I could not put anybody but Sue number one. Ed Reed was number two, which I think was pretty, pretty defensible as well. Yes. I, I would, I was the new head coach at Bethune Cookman. That's right. Yeah. That's it. So Ed Reed, Ed Reed taking, taking that job. Great Bill Connolly is, uh, is here now. Bill, we, we spent a lot of time on Michigan and TCU. I'm of the opinion that we're going to know pretty early, despite both yeah. teams' second-half prowess. Both are really good in the second half. TCU's defense particularly, and Michigan, I think, has outscored its opponents by 206 points, which in the last 15 years, only that Jameis Winston team that seemed to enjoy getting way behind <laughs> in the first half, only to come back in the second, has outscored opponents by more in the second half. Despite that, I sort of feel like we're going to know early. Uh, what What's the one thing you think that will signal to you how the game's going to go? Yeah, I think the first quarter, obviously, these two teams don't mind taking their time getting started. But in the first quarter, we're going to know just how... TCU is like the most orthodox three, three, five defense in the country. Like whatever the question is, whatever the scenario is, uh, you know, three, three, five is the answer. (laughs) This is, you know, Joe Gillespie's baby. He's really, really good at it. Uh, And they improved dramatically on defense this year, especially in the passing game. Um, and if they can force Michigan behind schedule, um, I think you know they, they're going to have a lot of athletes uh, in, in those passing lanes. And McCarthy's kind of gotten away with a few passes that could have been picked off, could have been uh, turned into pretty big, uh, bad situations for Michigan. Uh, but they, it's all about if they can force Michigan to pass because Michigan is is uh, just about the most dedicated team in the country to just mauling you. And <laughs> um, you know a three three five a six-man box most of the time like that's a little scary tcu dominated Bijan robinson like maybe mm-hmm. we'll find out that they can hold up 
But until we see that they can hold up, it does kind of worry me, you know, with all these blowouts we've seen through the years in the semifinals, it's not hard to piece together a, you know, Michigan rushes for 400 yards and rolls kind of scenario. But that's going to, I think, going to be the most interesting thing. If, if Michigan's falling behind schedule a little early on, no matter what the scoring situation is, if they're falling behind schedule, if, if those between the tackles runs are only getting a couple yards, that's probably a really good sign for TCU. Just quick on Bill on the defensive improvement. I uh, talked to a coach who played them late in the year, and he said first half of the season they probably played 25% cover two, and they went, basically went away from that and only played less than 5% cover two by the end of the year, and they just said, we're going to play man. We, yeah. we trust our guys, and that helped them. Obviously, Hodges Tomlinson especially has had a great year, and they could dedicate a little bit more focus to the run, and coaches found it more difficult to play them, and they saw a marked improvement from TCU um, from midseason on. So that was kind of an adjustment that my eyes wouldn't have uh, noticed that, uh, that I, that I think is important and meaning yeah. that we will see some one-on-one matchups on, on the outside. And, you know, can the Ronnie Bells and Cornelius Johnsons take advantage of them? Yeah, they don't blitz. Um, they blitz about less than just about anybody in the country. Um, and, and I mean, as a result, they, they don't really pressure the passer all that much either. That you, you have time to find guys. You just don't usually find guys um, because they really do trust those, uh, those DBs. And, and basically on both sides of the ball, that's going to be a really super interesting matchup, both when Michigan's trying to pass with Johnson and Bell and whatnot, but then also Quentin Johnston and, and some of the guys that Michigan's going to be covering. Michigan did a pretty good job against Ohio State's receivers. Not perfect, but they won more battles than most. They're going to have to win a lot more battles than this one, too. We've had 16 semifinal games in the history of the college football playoff. We've had exactly three <laughs> decided by single digits. Three. Yep. And let's uh, see, I'm, all of those are one possession. Yeah, those were all those were all legitimate games, one of them being the classic between Georgia and Oklahoma in the Rose Bowl mm-hmm. double overtime when uh, the other two being Ohio State's win over Alabama in the first playoff, mm-hmm. uh, 42-35, which is one of the more fascinating revisionist history things. While Zeke <laughs> Elliott certainly ran wild, uh, people act as if that game were 42-7. to and it was 42-35, and Alabama threw to the end zone on the last play of the game. You know, so that was that was actually a really, really good game. The Clemson-Ohio State game that Clemson won with the yeah. Trevor Johnson, uh, Trevor, Trevor Lawrence, a long run. Um, you know, that that was a great game. But those have been few and far between <laughs> in, the, in the semifinals. I'm not sure we get a classic in this year's semifinal. Do you, what do you guys think? No. No, I mean, it's hard because, you know, we, we have our recent impressions. And so it's really hard to to, to mm-hmm. turn one of these, you know, to, to assume that this will be any different. I do think what we've seen so far in the playoff era and what we see at the small school levels with, you know, the D2 and D3 finals a couple of weeks ago, you had uh, Ferris State against Colorado Mines. On paper, that's like a three or five or seven or eight point game. Ferris State blew them out. Um, Mm -hmm. North Central versus Mount Union in the D3 finals. Kind of the same story. Not as much of a blowout, but North Central carved out some really big early advantages. And it just feels like when we get into these situations where it's an elimination game and it's your 14th or 15th game of the season, it kind of seems like whatever advantages a team carves out, the other team maybe you know, let's go with the rope to, to use coach parlance a little bit more. And, and what might've been like a five minute advantage becomes like a 10 or 15 minute advantage. And it t- turns some decent games into blowouts a little bit more frequently. 
So I think that that's playing a role here. We, we got two games that are basically about a touchdown advantage for the favorite. And historically in the playoff era, you know, those turn into 14 or 17 or 21 point wins instead. So I'm, I'm curious, maybe it's just a small sample and we get a bunch of great games moving forward, but it is hard to just immediately assume that we're going to, that these two games are going to be different than what we've seen recently. Gun to your heads. Who pulls an upset? Ohio state. Yeah, I, I would say, I would say mm-hmm. that too, even though I've said, I've been on record saying, I think Georgia will win both games by yeah. more than a touchdown. But if I had to choose, I yeah. would probably say Ohio state simply because of the, of the weapons that they have, because yeah. I mean, it would, it would only take a couple, let's say a couple of miscues, a ball on the ground and, and not even turnover, but like, let's say, you know, Georgia misses an open receiver or, or an open receiver drops a touchdown pass, some such thing. To get the possessions off kilter, and if Ohio State gets rolling, they certainly have the weapons. So I would say if I had to choose one, I would I would say Ohio State's more likely. But I think Michigan is going to be able to establish a run and live up to that identity. But I'm not as completely out on TCU's chance in this game as some seem to be. Now, I, I, I've said I, I'm, I would pick Michigan. There's no question about that. But TCU all season long has exceeded expectations. They've gotten up off the mat. I think there's a real strength in that. And there's also, you know, there's also some strength in, um, you know, in, in wanting to prove something coming off a loss. Now, that also factors in for Ohio State, although, um, you know, the, the playoff era, while we don't have a ton of teams uh, coming in off losses, that's been a little bit of a mixed bag. Oh, um, you know Notre Dame, you know, got blown out after after getting blown out uh, in the ACC championship game of the year that they that they played. That I, you know, I guess Alabama actually did come back as the four seed and and beat Clemson. So you know, we don't have a, a long history of teams coming in off losses, but this year we have two teams coming in off of that. And Georgia last year, obviously, coming in off a loss and blowing out Michigan and, and winning the national championship. So um, you know, you got a couple of teams with the opportunity to do that. To do Bonus that. look ahead question. How much better equipped is this Michigan team if they rematch with Georgia? Yeah, that's I hate looking ahead, but it's kind of hard not to because both of these teams are favored by a decent amount. And I do think that. Well, I think there's no question that Michigan got better, um, which is crazy to say. They lost two first-round pass rushers. Um, they lost their their leading rusher. I think Haskins ended up being their leading rusher. Pretty sure he was. They lost both coordinators. They changed quarterbacks voluntarily, uh, and they got better. And uh, it, it's pretty wild. I, I, I wasn't quite sure. You know, last year they won the Joe Moore Award for Best Offensive Line. I didn't really think they were the best offensive line, and then Georgia just destroyed them up front all game long. They were really might be the best offensive line in the country this year. Um, the guys came back who came back improved, obviously the humongous transfer uh, that anchored everything in the middle. I, I think they actually have, they really might have the line to, to, to stand up to Georgia to some degree. I, I, in the end, McCarthy will have to make a lot of plays and I'm not sure. I, I don't know if I trust that yet. Uh, so I don't think they would, I would still pick Georgia, but I do think maybe they've closed the gap a hair. I don't think so. <laughs> I, th- I think they're. I think they're better. Yeah. But to me, to beat Georgia, there are certain. Now, understand what I'm going to say here. Anyone can lose 
Yes. You know, of course, Georgia can lose to Michigan. My point is, if they were to play, Georgia will have to help them in some way, whether that be uh, by turnover, drop pass, penalties, whatever it might. Georgia will have to help them. They can't beat them because to beat Georgia, you need, in my judgment, you need electric quarterback play and electric receivers who can get chunk plays against you and make you pay uh, and not allow you to just impose your will. You're not going to out Georgia, Georgia. And that's what Michigan is going to try to do because that's in their DNA. And while I do think Michigan is better and maybe Georgia's not, I don't think they're significantly, uh, significantly better. Now, you asked me the question. You, you brought up an interesting thing. I noticed the way you said this, Bill, about McCarthy. Maybe the maybe this three-week period or whatever it's been that they've been off, maybe he's made some strides. Yep. Now, if you ask me this question next year, <laughs> with JJ, with what I anticipate JJ McCarthy will be in his normal progression of improvement next year. Yeah. Okay. Then maybe so. And if he plays like what I anticipate will be the next year version of JJ McCarthy, then maybe so. But I, I don't, uh, I, I think Georgia has a decided edge if they rematch in that game, other than uh, the fact that Michigan, I think, was a little embarrassed last year because they, you know, they admittedly uh, have had the just happy to be there type of feel last year in the Orange Bowl. And there's probably some of that because they snapped a long losing streak to Ohio State and there was some euphoria uh, surrounding getting that Big Ten championship. And I think this year they expected to do that and it would be a shot at redemption. And, and you know, maybe that would play in their favor. Maybe so. The interesting part about Michigan is that they won the Ohio State game by being very un-Michigan-like. And that's yeah. a compliment, right? <clears throat> they had the... The, the two huge chunk pass plays in the first half, the Loveland over the top play in the, in the third, which I think I mentioned in the last part, I thought that was the biggest play of the game yeah. because that just mm-hmm. turned the tide. All of a sudden, Ohio State freezes up, can't move the ball on offense, and, you know, in a, in a way they go. And then they ran the ball. I want to say they had 10 carries for 11 yards in the first half of that game or 11 carries for 10. It was one of those two, and forgive right. me for transposing them in my head. But it was not a ton of carries because they didn't have a ton of possessions for not a lot of yards. And so which, you know, what what do you believe would show up in a Michigan-Georgia game? Like, yeah. I think it would be an in, interior line type play where – I remember saying this to Pollock. Uh, we went to the game day bus at halftime of that game. He was there with his uh, son, Nicholas, and his friends. And and this shows you how smart I am and why I don't bet. Obviously, if you've listened to our pick spot all year, you know exactly why I don't bet. But I said, man, I was like, Michigan hasn't, you know, they haven't peed a drop in the run game. And Blake Corm had tapped out at that point, um, yep. obviously, for the right reasons. He, he was not healthy. And I was just like, I just, in, in Ohio State had moved the ball. Like, they had pushed it down the field and kind of got, I was like, I was like, man, if there was a second half line, I would take Ohio State in a heartbeat. Like it just it, everything seemed to line up because yeah. for that Michigan wasn't going to be able to be the Michigan we knew. Now all the credit in the world for them hitting another chunk play over the top in the third, and then obviously breaking out those two runs in the fourth that made the game a blowout. Um, but I don't know if the empirical evidence from that game shows that they're a better version of the Michigan we know. Now they're good and they are improved. But I just don't know if that means they can ragdoll Jalen Carter and run inside zone up the middle. Um, yeah, if, no. If, yeah, no, that's I mean, not happening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's no. I, they had Ohio State on a string. Just absolutely, you know, Ohio State was very clearly 
lot, lots and lots of guys in the box. Felt like they were playing like a four-seven-zero uh, yes. kind of a defensive formation. And Michigan early on obviously could not run the ball, which you know they they didn't have the numbers for it, and they didn't have their best running back. So um, that made sense. But then once they they burned Ohio State over the top twice yeah. in the in the second quarter, did it again with Loveland, and it seemed like at that point Ohio State had to kind of back off a little bit. And then Michigan goes 15 plays, 80 yards, eight minutes down the field, old school Michigan kind of. Um, so I, I was really impressed with that. That was just basically a, here's what you're giving us. Here's how we're going to beat you kind of thing. Georgia's not going to make it that easy. Like I, I think Ohio state's defense is much better than what we saw against Michigan. Now, especially now that everybody's like broken hands and everything have had a chance to heal. They were really, really just kind of rickety there those last couple of weeks, but Georgia is Georgia. Uh, defensively, they're not going to, they're not going to, they don't have to put 11 guys in the box to stop the run. Um, they've got that Carter guy up front. Um, so I don't think they're going to find as many, okay, you're doing this. Well, we'll do this instead kind of advantages. There's no question about that. If you see you know, I'm always into the uh, high school highlight tape bill. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That was hilarious. Yeah, he's a lot. That's the way I think I put it in August. He's a linebacker. He just happens to be like 300 pounds and he has to play defensive tackle. He's, he's just a ridiculous athlete. <laughs> And, and I mean, that, that now that he's healthy again, we get to see that a little bit more. It looks like a sketch comedy skit, the way he blocks. <laughs> They're just like, ah! yeah. <laughs> the, the, I, I always have, have always been intrigued by the mental side of the game. And a lot of that Ohio State Michigan game was almost like uh, uh, I will hearken to my uh, favorite Christmas movie, a Christmas story where there's the triple dog dare, yeah. you know, and it was like, it's like they triple dog dared Michigan to prove that they could beat them in chunk plays. And they did. And they did. And, and at that point, uh, also because everything goes back to a Christmas story. If you remember when Ralphie beats up Scott Farkas, he sort of, he takes away the aura of invincibility around them. Michigan hits a couple of big plays on them in Ohio state all of a sudden has been hearing all week doubtless from their coaching staff. We're going to make them beat us over the top. We're going to make them prove we're going to make them prove. Well, guess what? What happens when they prove <laughs> yeah. uh, that means you've gotten a bloody nose and you're looking around and all of a sudden you don't feel like the bully anymore. And, you know, and Michigan did a great job of doing that. And perhaps they could do something similar in a potential matchup with Georgia. And since we've spent so much time talking about that, let's be sure we revisit the, uh, the most recent TCU Ohio State uh, meeting, which was in Jerry World when uh, Ryan Day was uh, acting head coach, I believe that year. That's right. And, and the game got Bosa a, got hurt. Yeah, it was. Uh, we, we, were there. we were his, there for oh, that. Oh, really? Took his yeah. NFL redshirt. Yeah. So looking looking forward to that. Let's uh, let's do what we do when the three of us get together. You guys want to pick some of these uh, yeah, some of these fascinating some terrible picks, yeah. Bill? When you weren't here, I bragged about my uh, scintillating start against the spread in the Capital One Bowl Mania Challenge. I've since cooled off, <laughs> but uh, which is to be expected. But I'm still sitting at fourteen and eight. So I'm going to actually oh, as, that's good, as, Reese. As Taylor, well, it, it's going to go away. But because sometimes you have to be Michigan and believe in what you've done and, and your approach, I'm actually, as Taylor calls these games out, I'm just going to use the cheat sheet of the games I've already mm-hmm. picked, and I'm, I'm just going to stick right with it and see if well, – I'm going to pick against you because so, you're due to lose. Yeah, you, you should because <laughs> I was horrific during the season 
uh, picking these games. So, uh, Taylor, you want to throw some games out at us? I mean, we should definitely do the New Year's Six games, but yeah. you can throw any others that you like in there, too. We're prepared. Sure, sure. Let's uh, let's get started here. Let's close the loop on these playoff games since we've talked about them at length now. Um, let's start with Michigan, a 7.5-point favorite against TCU. That is in the Verbo Fiesta Bowl. That is Saturday at 4 p.m. Let's go Reese Pete Bill. Well, it's been pretty clear through this discussion that I favor Michigan to win the game. Um, I do think Michigan's going to be able to run on TCU some. Uh, so I will take Michigan to win, but I don't know what the line is right now. But as I'm looking at when I made the picks, I was getting nine and a half with TCU. So if I'm getting nine and a half, is that what I'm getting, Taylor? Uh, as of right, as of this podcast, it's seven and a half. Yeah, it, it oh, went down. down. It went yeah. down. Uh, see that? Yeah, there. that makes that makes it a little tougher. Um, but I'm still. Uh, we don't have much of a history of close of close playoff games. I think every I think TCU has been hearing about how you know Michigan uh, lost in the semis last year. They go on through. You backdoored your way in because there was no one else. You didn't even win your conference <laughs> championship. I think Michigan's going to win. I'm going to take TCU in the points. Why not? And it's been a pretty foolproof method. And also because I just promised on the podcast, I would stick with what I picked, but then Taylor, <laughs> then Taylor rips me off for two points. So I'm kind of hosed there, but anyway, I'll take TCU in the points, but Michigan to win. I still have the uh, sound bouncing between my ears, the faint echoes of hail to the victors through an empty Ohio stadium. It's hard to get that from ringing between your ears when it just was played over and over and over that day. So I, what one thing I've learned, I'm terrible at picking games this year, but I just like, it's, if you think a team's going to win, it's hard to thread the needle and pick the spread, right? Like, like you're rooting for a backdoor cover at that point. So I'm going to take the point of attack and uh, the exploitation of a freshman nose tackle. And I'm going to go with a, slow crockpot mauling that eventually ends up in a 14 point win. Yeah. I'm going to, I want to pick one close game here, but I think I'm going to pick the other one. I'm going to go Michigan here. Um, I do think like, I mean, TCU, we've seen it all year. They, they, they can fall behind. They can look pretty, pretty shaky. Uh, Duggan's running for his life. And then just one, two or one, two, three punch right in a row, three touchdowns in, in about eight minutes. And suddenly the game's completely different. Like that's going to be Michigan has to get on top of them and stay on top of them for 60 minutes. There's no question about that. And it'll only take a couple of bad McCarthy passes against good coverage to, to really flip things around. I just, I can't get past the Michigan running for 300 yards thing. Um, I watched TCU shut down B. John Robinson and I still can't uh, get my mind away from just thinking that Michigan's going to run and run and run and run and run. So that's what we're going with. I think SP plus says something like Michigan by nine, um, that kind of not nine to 12. That feels probably the best to me. Playoff history suggests that it means it'll be 24, yeah, but right. um, yeah. I'm going to say nine to 12 and say Michigan. Let, let me just say one more quick thing, Taylor, before you bring the other one in, because I think it's really, really important because I want two words to have been uttered on this podcast uh, prior. Kendra Miller. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. good. I just I just wanted to make sure that, <laughs> that, that that was not missed at all because TCU wows you with the big plays and the giant receivers and the speed demons and Duggan's grit and then – Sometimes they just feed it to Miller and he hammers away and he gets business done. So he I makes him go, man. He yeah. makes him go. Yeah. 
Yeah. If they're going to win, Kendra Miller is going to run for a buck 50 plus. Yeah. And really, since we should have talked much more about Kendra Miller, who's had a sensational season and balanced out TCU's offense over the course of the campaign and scored many big touchdowns and consistently finds his way to the end zone, 17 rushing touchdowns. Who better to be best in game? Brought to you by Old Dominion Freightline, helping the world keep promises. We almost forgot the sounder, you guys. That would have been a major oversight. We can't have that as we preview the semifinals. The other semifinal, the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, 8 p.m. on Saturday. Georgia, a six-and-a-half-point favorite against Ohio State. Let's go Pete Bill Reese. I am a sucker for talent, right? Like you guys know from, from hearing me on the pod, I am a sucker for a great prospect, a sucker for height, weight, speed. Spent a lot of my time talking to scouts uh, who view who view it through the unemotional prism of that. And from a pure talent standpoint, there is an argument that Ohio State can win this game. They have the second best roster of any team in the playoff behind Georgia. And I don't think there's a wide gap there because I do think, I don't think Georgia's roster this year is the 15 guys drafted roster of last year. Uh, I think Jalen Carter is unbelievable on defense, but Georgia's a little bit younger, uh, especially at linebacker. And uh, they are talented at corner. I will say this. uh, I chuckled a few times this week calling around about Georgia. There's still some skepticism of their corners and that, you know, Lassiter and Ringo, especially in their ability to play the ball in the air. So I had a couple of scouts flat out tell me they think Harrison could abuse Ringo because Harrison is so nuanced of a receiver and Ringo is talented, but unrefined. So um, I can find some pathways for Ohio state to win this game, but I just, I don't see them being able to block Jalen Carter. And that's what I come back to is that if they cannot run the ball, they're going to get off schedule. They're going to become too reliant on the pass game and Georgia is going to be too complex defensively to be able to just, they're, they're not going to out, they're just not going to chunk them to death. They will get chunks. And I think Marvin Harrison Jr. will have 150 plus yards receiving. I just, but I just can't see Ohio State one dimensional going and winning this game with, with CJ Stroud passing 52 times. So I'm going to take the Bulldogs. I do think it will be a good game, um, but I think Georgia ends up winning by a touchdown. I'm not going to get suckered on the, on the points there. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Ringo versus Harrison's pretty big time. I do think, though, that uh, so there's a ESPN stats and info has a stat that they've been um, they kind of showed to all of us uh, over the summer. And it's it's in our little stat tool called yards per coverage snap. Pretty, pretty straightforward. How many times, uh, you know, are you in coverage and how many yards have you given up when your guy catches the ball? Um, what I've come to learn is something in the like 0.2 to 0.5 range is typically where the dominant corners are. Keith Ringo's at 0.8 and and Starks is at 0.7. Basically, they will make plays. They will pick off passes. They will win battles. But they're also going to give up some 13, 15, 20-yard gains. And, um, you know, that's – never mind Harrison. I mean, Egbuka is right there too, uh, out of the slot to, to really take advantage if you don't have all your numbers in the right place. And I think Ohio State's going to win some battles there. I, I'm picking Georgia, of course. Uh, but I do think um, the fact that Georgia doesn't throw the ball well deep uh, – they've hit a couple here and there. They I think they hit one against LSU. That, that game felt, feels like three months ago now, but I'm pretty 
pretty sure they did. Um, like they can they can hit some shots here and there, but I, you know the the Michigan game is not what we saw from Ohio State's defense all year, and I don't think it's going to be that easy for them. I was in I was in town. I was actually in the stadium the one time Georgia almost lost a game this year, which is not what I expected to say about the Georgia Missouri game, but. Missouri basically played cover zero, cover one, four Stetson Bennett to make plays, and he barely did. They they eventually got things together. They ended up having to be perfect in the fourth quarter, and they were perfect in the fourth quarter. But but Missouri took the fight to them like Ohio State will, and Georgia didn't respond all that well. So I do think this is going to be I, – I hope this is going to be a really, really good game. But, of course, I'm picking Georgia. Uh, so Ohio State to cover, Georgia to win. Oh, you're so you're, the, so you're, you're taking the points. Yes, I'm taking. I'm saying Georgia will win. I'm saying Ohio State will keep it close. Okay, to put it, to further amplify some of the Ringo Harrison things, um, you know, I ran across a stat where Ringo is. I think there's 33 guys who played at least you know 20 snaps in press, and he's given up more completions uh, than anyone in press. Um, Marvin Harrison has been great against press this year. These 14 catches you know, 214 yards, couple touchdowns among those daring to do so. Well, George is going to do so. So he is going to make some plays. Um, this is a game where CJ Stroud can uh, potentially become the number one overall pick in the draft. <laughs> I mean, if he, st- if he stands in there and, you know, throws for 375 and four touchdowns and they win the game in Atlanta, then I think that could change a lot of scouts' minds about him. That's not the number one goal right now. I only bring that up to emphasize the importance of him doing so if they're going to have a chance to win the game. Um, I think that I think that Ohio State probably has as talented, if not more talented, in some spots roster than Georgia does. But I think Georgia's a better team, and I think Georgia, you know, not to not to incite Buckeye Nation or anything, but um, you know, to echo the words of, of the late, great Pat Dye, I'm not sure Ohio State's man enough to go down it and beat Georgia and win the game. They'll play them tough. They'll make some plays. But I think, I think Georgia ends up winning the game in, what, in which they will seem threatened for a while, but they'll end up winning the game by double figures. So I'm, I'm taking Georgia and laying the points. Can I add one fun stat? Yep. Georgia... 12 personnel, obviously, we haven't talked, said the word Brock Bowers or Darnell Washington. Yeah. 59% of the time, yeah. third highest in that. So Ohio State's ability to either be big enough in nickel to 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 man up to the Washington's world and stop the run or d- diverse enough if they if they go, put an extra linebacker and to, to spread out and stop, that will really be, a lot of coaches talk to me about that. That will really be key. But that that number, I don't, I mean, 12, 60% of the time it's 12 personnel. Uh, one, one opposing coach said it was like when the Patriots had Gronk and Aaron Hernandez. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just a, that's just a totally different style of football. Yeah, it, it's hilarious. They um in, in the preview I just finished writing, I had a whole section on on what I was calling the man ball spread. Like two years ago, we were all Georgia's got to modernize. Georgia's got to be more like <laughs> Alabama and all this stuff. They got to spread teams out more. They got to do all these things that all these modern offenses are doing. And they basically said, okay, we're gonna do it with one guy who's 6'4", 230, and one guy who's whatever Washington is, 6'7", 270 or whatever it is. And it just, they have huge guys in space and it's something that nobody else does. It's the thing that we talk about Georgia and Michigan being really similar. They both want to bully you with the run game, but Georgia does that too. Michigan doesn't throw side to side. They don't care about that. Georgia mm-hmm. will absolutely make you stop that. And it's so hard to prepare for. 
And who else hands the ball to the tight end? If you really <laughs> want to call him That's a tight right. end, he shouldn't He's be the best running back. He shouldn't That's be right. listed as a Brock Bowers. I mean, he shouldn't be listed as a tight end anyway. They should just call him baller. They should just have a, like BAL right there or something for if they want a three a three letter abbreviation for the position he plays. And, he should and be let, a top ten Heisman candidate next year. Yeah, and season let, starts. The other thing too to keep an eye on is Lab McConkey. Um, yeah. You know how healthy is he? Uh, yes. For them, the wide receiver who is who is a a big play threat for Georgia, and there are, are not as many of them as you might anticipate on the outside, at least not proven ones up to this point. McConkey's made some McConkey's made big plays for them over the last couple of years. Ad Mitchell coming back too could be yeah. um, a big story. He obviously had the big, big touchdown catch last year in the, the national championship title game. game. Yeah, um, yeah. They've been he, waiting he, on he him all year, and he just had a hard time getting yeah. getting completely healthy. All right, fellas, we've gone very deep on these semifinal games. Let's go through some of these games on New Year's Eve and the uh, second as well. Not playing any games on the first. Uh, So Iowa, a two-point favorite against Kentucky. What a segue. What a segue. The trans perfect. (laughs) I'd have to look. I have to pull that up here. It's the trans perfect Music City Bowl, Nissan Stadium. In Nashville, Tennessee, at noon, competing with another game that we'll talk about uh, in just a moment here. But I, I guess we can go, um, Bill, Reese, Pete, and I, let me look up that over under for you, Pete. Thirty-one. I'm shocked it's that high. No, I um, <laughs> SP Plus projected thirteen point two to twelve point eight as the as the final score. I don't know if there's ever been a score that low in in my projections, and that was in, that was these projections are made as if Will Levis is going to play, as if like all of Iowa's and Kentucky's quarterbacks and uh, skill better skill core guys weren't in the portal or already gone. Like it, it's. I, I, I'm I'm legitimately excited about this game because it's going to be such a weird <laughs> brand of football. And I also I'm holding out the one percent hope that we're all talking. This is going to be like six to four or whatever. And suddenly it's forty two thirty eight. Like uh, Kentucky just goes with the Bowden back kind of quarterback again and rushes for five hundred yards. I will walk on quarterback whoever's playing um, throws for four hundred or something. I'm I'm really hoping that uh, they pull out all the stops and something crazy happens. But you know six to four is probably more likely and. You know, bring it on. I, I, I guess I'm picking. Wait, who's actually favored in this game? I, I've only looked at the over under Iowa by two points. Okay, give me Kentucky. I, don't, I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's going to be low, but give me Kentucky. Iowa's now favored by two. Okay, so at, at one point, Kentucky was favored by a point and a half, and Bill stole my score. So I'm <laughs> going to have I'm going to have to adjust a little bit. So if Iowa's favored by two, I'm taking Kentucky and the points. Um, so I will say that Kentucky will win the game eight to five. <laughs> Two field goals and a safety for uh, for Kentucky. It would be so disappointing if there wasn't at least one safety in this There's game. Got to be a safety in this game. <laughs> There's not a safety in this game. Some type of investigations in order. If you can make a prop bet on Jack Campbell being the game's leading scorer, I would bet on that because he seems to score more than uh, most Iowa's skill position That's players. So I just think the fact that Jack Campbell's playing and the fact that Riley Moss is playing, the fact that Sam Laporte are playing, those are some pretty good players playing. So I am going to uh, I am going to take Iowa. I'm going to take them to muscle a cover, and I'm going to say they're going to win nineteen to six. Ooh. 
guys are going to have to make some tough decisions on what to watch because at the same time, the All-State Sugar Bowl down in New Orleans at noon, you'll see Alabama, a six and a half point favorite against Kansas State. Let's hear it from Reese, Pete, and then Bill. Uh, this is the quintessential game. Alabama has done better a couple of times recently when out of the playoff. Doesn't happen very often, obviously, but they played well against Michigan in a Citrus Bowl or something. Um, the fact that Bryce Young and Will Anderson are playing is, you know, is fascinating and speaks well for them and their culture. While I, I hasten to point out, I've got no problem with guys not playing. It's fine. I mean, you have to make an individual decision. They've decided that this is important to them personally, and it is important uh, to them in terms of their position as leaders, and if I'm not mistaken, both two-time captains at Alabama. Because of that, that means they've placed some importance on it. They've lost some, they've lost some guys in the portal. They've lost a, a little depth here and there. This typically would be the game where Kansas State's going to be far more motivated to play. And I think Kansas State will be very motivated. Their fan base will be far more excited uh, than Alabama's will be. And Alabama doesn't have the richest history uh, in recent years of going to the Sugar Bowl. The Utah game comes to mind. The Oklahoma game comes to mind. When it, uh, Even the Ohio State game, when it was a playoff game, they haven't fared that well uh, in New Orleans in recent years. Uh, though they did, I know they did beat Clemson there once. But I'm going to there there's not a lot of reason to do this. You can you can say that you know Alabama's going to be angry, they're focused. Uh, Bryce Young wants to prove a point. Will Anderson wants to prove a point. But the simple fact of the matter is they haven't played that game not one time this year. Name one game this year that Alabama has played to its potential. I can't name it. Not one. And unfortunately for Kansas State, I don't think that this will happen. Completely, but I think Alabama is going to play very well, and I'm going to take Alabama to cover. It's a very fair point on Alabama. It has been an unsatisfying season, and I don't think this is one of their more talented teams. Um, and I do think there are some legitimate questions about their roster going forward. Now, again, this isn't going to be the death of the Saban dynasty or anything like that, but like Alabama looked a lot like everybody else this year. That's really the best way to say it. And they can't let Bryce Young's departure be their Colt McCoy moment where all of a sudden all the other uh, frailties in the program are exposed. I don't think that's going to happen. I want to be very clear about that. But I do think Bryce Young covered a lot of sins for, for Alabama. That said, man, Kansas State lost to Tulane. Like, I mean, and again, yeah. Tulane was very good this year. But like just from a pound for pound talent perspective, <clears throat> I, have a, I have a hard time thinking an energized Alabama program on this kind of stage is, is going to lay an egg. So I think they can win by a touchdown. I think it'll be a good game. I think it'll be a close game. I have a lot of respect for Kansas State. Everybody who's listened to the podcast would know that from this year. But I am just going to go with the more talented team, and I think they send off Young and Anderson the uh, the right way. Yeah, I mean, usually in this game, it's all about, you know, which Alabama, you know, they're not playing for the national title, which one shows up. They either show up angry and they win by 40 or they, they you know, lay an egg. And I, I'm going to, because the the two stars are playing, I'm going to assume they're not going to lay an egg. But you're right. I don't think they're going to show up angry and win 49-7 either. I think I'm, I'm going to pick Alabama because I... I think the line's just a little too low. I think it should be, you know, seven to ten. Um, I, I would, I, I trust Alabama to hit that mark eventually. 
But just looking through their results and looking at, you know, at the projections, the SP plus projections and whatnot, I mean, they blew out bad teams like good teams are supposed to do, but they underachieved a little bit, at least a little bit in, against basically every single good team they faced this year. They didn't quite live up to that standard. Uh, they didn't usually underachieve by a ton except for that A&M game. But um, I, I, it's... I don't feel as confident in Alabama as I should. I'm just going to say that they win by eight to 10 instead of six and a half or whatever. You know, we always try to make something big out of it. And maybe, maybe it is something big, but there are times in sports across sports. It just doesn't click. Yep. You, know, you say, well, what does that mean? Well, nobody knows because if they knew they'd fix it. You know, but it just didn't click for them this year for whatever reason, whether it was, you know, Young wide receivers, uh, you know, offensive line play not quite as good. Maybe some, maybe, you know, maybe coaching staff, you know, need, needs a little uh, freshening up, whatever it might be. It just didn't click. And, you know, this will, uh, it, it's a really interesting point for them going forward because I would assume there are going to be uh, some changes on both sides of the ball and on yeah. their staff. It says, it speaks to where the bar is because right now they're fourth in SP. This would be the first time they finish. <laughs> outside the top three since 2008. Uh, that's how, you know, everything's falling apart. They're fourth. Um, right. And the only time in that bunch that they were third, they've been mostly first or second. The only time they were third was 2019 when they responded with probably the best team of the Saban era. So I'm not, I'm not writing anything off, but they no, definitely yeah. not quite cleared their own bar this year. Yeah, and that, that's, a, that's a great way to put it, Bill, because it's their own bar. It's not everybody else. Everybody else's bar uh, I think I, I saw with Michigan, Michigan and Alabama are the only two teams in the country in the top 10 in scoring offense and scoring defense. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like they, they just, you know, they didn't come through in a couple of big games and, it, and then there were other games and they didn't really look the part. So we'll see what happens against Kansas state. Either way, great run for Kansas state, big 12 champions and Deuce Vaughn, yep. uh, Deuce Vaughn will come to play against them because this is a big opportunity for him oh, yeah. as well. Yeah. And you can beat you can beat their secondary for big plays too, Alabama's. So Kansas State has a shot to make some some chunk plays and stick around. And sneaky, you can get chunk plays running on them too. Yeah, I mean they haven't they've they've given up a lot of uh, a lot of sizable runs. It is good. If you wake up on the first of the new year and you're wondering where all your college football went, it is being played on Monday, January 2nd, and the first of those games at noon, the Relia Quest Bowl at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, Florida. Mississippi State, a one-point favorite against Illinois. Um, I've totally lost control of the uh, order here, so let's go Pete, Bill, Reese. This game will not have a lot of points in it. I think that's probably safe to say. Illinois' defense has uh, been one of the best stories in the country this year, really, the, the the job they did. And now, again, with these Bulls, you start piecing together who's here and who's not. Ryan Walters has gone to Purdue. Chase Brown is not playing for Illinois. So those are two pretty key figures. And obviously, uh, the great Mike Leach has passed uh, since Mississippi State uh, last played a game. And there will certainly be an emotional impact uh, that, that's going to be uh, difficult to, uh, to, to gauge. And it's almost like one of those games I wouldn't bet on because you just don't know how, how people are going to react to that. But um, I think that Mississippi State should be able to move the ball a little bit. And I think they have their, 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 their key pieces. Um, it'll obviously be a test for Zach Arnett. And uh, they obviously are, are going to bring in a new play caller because Mike Leach called the play. So there is going to be some adjustment. This is just not going to look like it has looked like in the past. But uh, 
let's hope that Mississippi State can ride an emotional wave and, and, and you know, give, give those kids a, a victory. That program has been through hell last month. I, I mean, this is an impossible. Yeah, I'm not putting any money on this game ever because um, there are just so many variables here. Um, on paper, ignoring everything that we know will be a factor, just looking at what these two teams did in the regular season, I do think Illinois has a slight advantage here. Um, and and really, Chase Brown, Reggie, uh, or uh, what's his name? Uh, yeah, Reggie Love, the the backup running back. His numbers are basically identical to Chase Brown's. Um, you know, in terms of inside and outside the pocket and and yards after contact and all that stuff. So I I don't know that they're going to miss him as much as it probably feels like you would miss a guy who averages sixty eight carries a game or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I I, uh, I guess I'm going to go with Illinois here. I, I don't. I'm glad that we're not putting any actual stakes on this because I, I have no idea. I, I'll, all I really hope for here is that the ultimate, I saw somebody on Twitter post this, the, the ultimate tr- uh, tribute to Mike Leach would be zero rush attempts for Mississippi State in this game. <laughs> all passes. Just yeah. nothing It'd but be down like verts. 28 and come back and win. Right. Yeah. Four <laughs> verts like 64 times. Just uh, Just make this the most Leach game imaginable. That's really all I hope for because this is just tough it's going to be I, I don't know who shows up and and how this plays out but it's going to be tough uh, I'm, I'm making the pick based purely on the emotion of of that and mississippi state i think is going to you know play with its hair on fire uh to try to honor leach and um you know and also to christen the zach arnett era there so I, i'm taking mississippi state to win the game uh, what there's a pirate ship in the stadium. I mean, everything seems, everything seems to be aligned <laughs> with that would, uh, that would be a great tribute to Mike if Mississippi state plays as well as it can, as well as it can and beats Illinois. It is good! Monday at one o'clock, the cheese it citrus bowl, LSU, a 14 and a half point favorite against Purdue at camping world stadium in Orlando. Let's go bill Reese Pete for this one. That's a huge line. Um, I, 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 I think LSU wins, um, but I just can't really get past that line. It's, it's really big. I think SP plus said more like LSU by eight um, and obviously change and so on. But uh, I, I feel like LSU should be able to run the ball. Um, you know, Daniels is, yeah, D- Daniels is back. Daniels is yeah, playing and all that. Back, so yeah. Um, I think in the end, whatever advantages Purdue might find offensively, LSU will just find more. Um, that's that's I think my entire analysis of this game is I just think that the LSU is good and and should it has a seven to ten point advantage and 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 all that. I just can't believe the line's that high, so I'm going Purdue. I, I didn't realize the line was that that high either. That's moved like crazy. Of course, I think. Um, um, some of those initially were prior to the coaching change and so forth. Yeah, I, I'm gonna. I'm really hesitant to lay that many points in any bowl game when you don't know. But I think LSU coming off the loss in the SEC championship game, a little continuity there. Purdue in flux. Purdue already uh, showing the capacity to get worked a little bit by uh, you know by good teams. I'm gonna go ahead and lay it. I'll, I'll take LSU and lay the 14 and a half. Well, Purdue doesn't have Aiden O'Connell. Purdue doesn't have their great tight end, Peyton Durham. And Purdue doesn't have Charlie Jones. So I'm not betting oh, on Oh, Jones. Eee, okay, I don't think I caught that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. So I uh, I am not going to uh, put my metaphorical uh, ribeye behind, uh, behind a Purdue where I can't name many of their players. <laughs> so uh, 
Yeah, Austin Burton will get the star for the Boilermakers, uh, son of Steve Burton, the uh, legendary Boston sportscaster. He's been around. He was a backup for Chip Kelly for a couple of years at UCLA. He's an older he's an older guy. He's 22, 23, um, can certainly spin it. Um, I just, uh, you know, it's not like Purdue has this uh, overflow of weapons. They're also without the best corner. So um, there's just too much evidence for me to, like, try to backdoor a two-touchdown cover. I'm just going to I'm just going to take LSU. Uh, I'm going to stay committed to Purdue. I didn't know about Jones, though. That would have probably changed my original pick there. Oh, well. It is good! Also at 1 p.m., the Goodyear Cotton Bowl Classic at AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas. Number 10 USC, a two-point favorite against number 16 Tulane. Let's go Reese Pete Bill. There's no reason in the world you got the Heisman Trophy winner at quarterback and a couple guys were out for USC. There's no reason in the world to go against all of that talent, even with the defensive deficiencies, except that I'm going to. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to take Tulane because, uh, again, Lou Holtz told me years ago, the number one thing in bowl games is who really wants to be there. Um, this has a little bit of what we talked about with Alabama, in which Alabama shows up. USC certainly doesn't have that um, that long history to rely on, but they were they were a game away from the playoff. Now they're not. Now they're playing in the Goodyear Cotton Bowl Classic uh, against a team that is a that we know if we follow it all the time that's really good in Tulane, but is a team that won two games last year and is a team that has not been on the radar of precious few Trojans ever in their lives. <laughs> so I'm I'm going to go with the entire emotional edge, a well-coached, better than you think team with some explosive players. And I'm going to I'm going to go with Tulane and ride that in, in the game against SC. That makes perfect sense, and I can clearly see Tulane winning this game, but I'm just not going to go against Caleb Williams. And even without Jordan Addison, there's plenty of skill to go around at USC. And I just think Caleb Williams is that guy who will figure it out with his legs. He will figure it out with the weapons available. He'll figure it out with a makeshift offensive line. And uh, he is going to cobble together some kind of victory. So I just have, I have a lot of faith in Caleb Williams, who we'll be talking about a lot this offseason. And I just think... He, he, on this stage, figures out a way and sets a tone to uh, to be the sports dominant player and dominant figure in 2023. I was so annoyed by this line because um, when, when the game was announced, I'm like, yes, this, this is going to be it's going to be like USC minus 10. I'm picking two lanes, no <laughs> question. It's going to be easy. And then it was and now it's two and a half. And, and now I have to pick against my beloved angry wave here. Um I, no, it's it's all about Caleb Williams. Uh, you know the fact that he was able to do what he did against Utah in that in the conference title game with one hamstring. Obviously, he's not going expected to be a hundred percent, but he's going to be good enough. Um, you Tulane's going to potentially run the ball like crazy on USC. They are built to take advantage of of the the deficiencies we've seen this year uh, against USC. I'm just gonna. It's got to be Caleb Williams. The I've been playing a lot with, you know, it's, it's, it's December. So I've been playing in my data hole a lot. And um, I've been playing with some of the sports info solutions data that they, that they have in, in our data tool that I wasn't able to, to look at a lot during the season. 
And there's a, they, they categorize things as like why it passes as wide open or open or contested. And, mm-hmm. and it's been kind of interesting to play with that. Um, like Georgia has 31% of their passes have been to wide open guys, typically side to side, open in space, all that. Um, and that's cool. I use that in my, in my piece. It stands out, however, that USC is number one in, in percentage of passes that are wide open. They're 39%. Nobody else was above 31%. And I'm pretty wow. sure that's because Caleb Williams just runs around and guys get open and he throws the ball downfield quite a bit. Um, and I think that's going to happen again, one hamstring or not. I think he's just going to create enough plays to, to win this game. I hope Tulane plays as well as I think they will though, especially on offense. Cause this should be a super fun game. It is good! Last game here, the Rose bowl, Utah, a two and a half point favorite against Penn state. That's at 5. PM. Let's go. Pete, Bill Reese. When, uh, Penn State left tackle Olu Fashanu uh, decided to come back. He could have been a top five pick in this NFL draft. Uh, I tweeted out the the story, and the great Bill Connolly immediately just put a hype train graphic <laughs> logo ab- yep. above the above the breaking news story because Penn State is sort of shaping up to be that team that people are going to pick next year, maybe to win the big 10. Maybe people are going to pick next year to be in the playoff. And there's a combination of the talent of drew Aller, who people in the building love at Penn state. And obviously the, the two freshmen tailbacks, Singleton and Allen. And now the offensive line has really been that like missing piece at Penn state. And uh, they've had talent deficiencies there and give Phil Troutwine credit in that they now have like an anchor and they now have, uh, you know, someone to go behind. So that said, like, there's a there's a youth talent movement at uh, at Penn State that's pretty cool and pretty interesting. If they win this game, that train will be roaring down the tracks. Bill Connolly roaring down the tracks. Um, so that said, yeah, I'll take I'll take two and a half points in in, in Penn State in the Rose Bowl in a, in, a, in a historic game. I, I think that yeah, I think that that they it will be a good test of their metal. Like, can they go in, in sort of headbang with Utah in the trenches, um, which quite frankly, a lot of teams, including USC haven't been able to do. So I think Penn state passes the test. And I think the train rolls uh, going, going forward here. And Sean Clifford finishes his 17th year of college with a win. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess they both have some opt outs, Joey Porter for Penn state, Dalton Kincaid, I think for Utah, um, if I remember, but, but Cam right. Rising's playing, I think, uh, so if uh, close to full strength, as far as bowl standards go and, and, you know, just based on p- purely on paper, what we saw this year, SP plus says Penn State by one, um, that kind of feels about right to me. I do think, you know, the hype train is going to be interesting next year. Uh, but I think also Penn state was really good this year. They're on beating against non-playoff teams. I got thumped by those non-playoff teams, especially one of them or by playoff teams. But, uh, um, but I, I just, I think Penn state's really good and they should be able to hold up enough against Utah's, uh, you know, the trenches and Utah's advantages that their skill on the, in the other positions wins out. It, it would be kind of cool if Sean Clifford after everything, after a full year of speculation about like, you know, he, he came back when the kind of people weren't expecting him to, uh, they didn't give the job to the freshman Clifford played all year and played mostly well against non-playoff teams It'd be really cool if he ends with a win. I think he probably will. I'm going to go against the grain. I'm going to of your grains anyway. I'm going with you. I'm going with Utah. Um, 
I, I agree with everything that's been said about Penn State. And I think Penn State uh, will be a contender in the Big Ten next year. And I think this is going to be a sensational game. And the loss of Kincaid is going to be a significant deal. But kind of working on the emotional angle, Utah would be very, it would be very likely Utah would be very satisfied with the Pac-12 championship and a victory over USC, if not for what happened in the Rose Bowl last year when they played a great game against Ohio State Mm -hmm. and came up just a little bit short. Um, So I'm going to say that the Utes have kind of looked at this as unfinished business. They'll They'll be focused and tough. I think this will be a tremendous game until the very end, but I'm going to go with the Utes uh, to win it. Gentlemen, really looking forward to the playoffs starting to the other bowl games as well. Uh, looking forward to seeing if if my record in these picks can be a little bit better than it was <laughs> in the regular season, which it was absolutely dreadful. Thank you for listening to the College Game Day podcast. We'll be with you throughout the postseason for Bill and Pete and our entire tremendous staff. Uh, Charles Taylor and Sarah. Charles Taylor's one person, by the way. Uh, Thank you for listening. Download this podcast wherever it is that you like to listen to your podcast.